Well, I want to start off and tell you a story about a young church plant. It's a good chance some of you have heard of it. There's this brand new church plant. It's planted in an extremely poor community, but they had a genuine love for the Lord, and they banded together as one. And as a result, they really took off in their growth, both in depth and in breadth early on. They were joyfully serving together. They were engaged in missions. They were doing mercy ministry, trying to reach their city with the gospel. And over maybe the first five years or so, everything was going really well. But all their growth was later threatened. Everything they achieved looked like it was going to come undone. And what, what was the problem? It was church conflict. This church, like all churches, were filled with a bunch of very different pe- people. And they were knit together in one tapestry by the Spirit and by their faith in Christ. But they were starting to come apart at the seams. And this conflict all centered on two people. There's two very prominent members in the church, and they came to a disagreement. It was not over theology or doctrine, but just personal issues. But neither was willing to back down. They kind of dug in their heels. Everyone else took sides. It's kind of like a rift was opening up in the church, splitting the congregation in, in two. And if this rift wasn't closed, the church could just cave in on itself. Their witness was being threatened. Their growth was being stunted. Now, I probably said enough. Do you know what church I'm talking about? Uh, I've been describing the Philippian church. Never said it was a a new church, a recent church. (laughs) Now, hearing the details I just described, though, it very well could be a recent church. In fact, I bet some of you may have had in mind a church you know that has split under similar circumstances not too long ago. It's sad, but all too common that still today, churches experience this type of conflict and can come apart. You may have genuine believers, but... Uh, Pride gets the best of them at the end of the day. And this was heartbreaking to the Apostle Paul who planted the Philippian church. And he was not going to just sit by and watch as it was coming apart. He was compelled to do something, to intervene, to to peacemake. He couldn't visit the Philippian church in person, seeing that he was in prison in Rome at the time. So he did the next best thing and he wrote them a letter. It's one of the main reasons Paul wrote the letter of Philippians. He wanted to, to be a peacemaker, and he really he solicits other people in the Philippian church to come alongside him and, and play peacemaker as well to help reconcile these two conflicting parties. You catch a glimpse of this in Philippians 4, 2 through 3, where he writes, I urge Yodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers. You know, last week, we actually took a one-week detour into Philippians. We explored the need for unity through humility in the local church. And especially as external opposition grows, the church must be tightly knit together as one in Christ. But sometimes, and most times, that's easier said than done. You know, sin divides, pride is strong. And sometimes you have two people or two groups, they just don't have the humility or maturity to reconcile their differences. And so sometimes you need a a third party to to get in between them, a peacemaker to to bridge the gap and reconcile the two. And that's still the case. And this work of peacemaking, it's not just for pastors and elders. If only all of God's people were peacemakers, the church would experience a lot more of that powerful unity. And this is a call given out to all believers. This is a mark that should characterize everyone in the faith, 
And Christ himself said so. We're going to discover that today as we return to the Gospel of Matthew and the Beatitudes. So you can take your Bibles, open them back up again to Matthew chapter 5 as we resume and really near the end of this introduction to the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapters 5 through 7, it captures Christ's preeminent sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where he ascends this local hill around the Sea of Galilee. He gathers his disciples around himself to teach and some onlookers as well. And as he teaches, there's still so many uh, treasures of wisdom and knowledge we've yet to discover in this sermon. But in many ways, Christ starts off by just giving us the crown jewels in the form of the Beatitudes. Verses 3 through 12, Jesus gives eight Beatitudes. These are pronouncements of divine blessing. With, with the Old Testament in mind, there's nothing worse than to be cursed. To be cursed is to be under God's judgment, wrath, divine displeasure. And to be blessed is the opposite. It's divine favor and acceptance. It's what we seek and it's what Jesus is promising and offering here. Blessing. He shows us what it means, what it looks like, how to get it. And so far we've learned that the first four Beatitudes function in many respects like a roadmap to the kingdom, to this divine blessing. In Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We've learned that entrance into the kingdom always starts with humility. Finding God's salvation begins with just seeing your own sin, being, being broken over the depths of your own spiritual bankruptcy before God. You realize you're utterly lost. You can't do anything to save yourself. That realization is meant to humble you and, and break you. It breaks your rebellious spirit. But it also makes Christ truly desirable because you come to see him for who he is and recognize he's your only hope. Christ and his righteousness, that's your only hope. You become desperate for him like one starving for food. And the one who approaches Jesus like this with the humble, meek faith will find him and will find entrance to his kingdom. The second four Beatitudes in turn then describe life thereafter. What life should be like for those who who have entered the kingdom of heaven. So we've seen verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Having been on the receiving end of God's overwhelming mercy, we should now be those who happily show mercy to others. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. We should also be those given over to a single-minded devotion to the Lord. We're trying to reach the world and the lost, but at the same time, keeping ourselves unstained by the world. And Colossians 3.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in the Beatitudes, he's, he's dishing out some of those treasures. These are rich truths we've been through so far. And that carries on today with the seventh Beatitude. It's found in verse 9, where he's continuing to tell us how we are to live as members of this kingdom. Verse 9, it's our subject for today. Let's read that now. Beatitude number 7, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This verse is going to capture our attention today, but it presents us with a needed challenge. 
Because conflict still rears its head, even in the church. Even among those who've been made citizens of this kingdom, as we live here below, sin can still divide us. The Lord wants us to live in harmony. And so we need to be those who seek peace and pursue it. We can't sit idly by and do nothing while we see people divide in their lives. We see people divide in their homes and in the church. As children of God, who himself made peace with us. He calls us to be not peace fakers, not peace breakers, but peacemakers. We need to explore what that means and then talk a little bit about how to do it. And that's our aim for this morning. First things first, we're just going to make a pass through verse 9 and just try and understand what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the peacemakers. What, what is a peacemaker? Well, we start with this word for peacemaker, Trouble is, it's only used once in the New Testament right here. But it's derived from the Greek word for peace, which is used all over the place. And and the Greek word for peace in Scripture has underneath it the Hebrew notion of peace, which is shalom, the peace of God. And peace in this sense is less about the cessation of warfare. It's more about just reconciling two parties. Peace is the absence of discord, both in the soul before God, and in human relationships. And so the peacemaker is the one who who promotes harmony between people and the lives of others. That's simple enough. Let's see if we can drill down a little further about the the nature of the peace we're trying to seek and promote. So let's start negatively. What peacemaking does not involve? The peacemaker is one who seeks to reconcile two parties, but not at any cost. The peacemaker will compromise, but there are certain lines that must be drawn. There are hills worth dying on. Now, every Christian must have convictions and beliefs forged in the truth of God's word, and those can't be compromised for anything. We can't turn our back on the truth in order to achieve harmony. That would become a superficial and and unbiblical harmony. And over in Ephesians 4.15, Paul is exhorting the church to grow up together as one in one body. He tells us how we're to do that. It's by speaking the truth in love. He doesn't just say speak love. Just tell people what they want to hear. Just be complimentary. Now, you must maintain an attitude of love and a motive of love in all that you do. But yet we're called to speak the truth. It's not truth or love. It's truth in love. But when you sacrifice what is true to to keep some notion of peace, you really risk barring people from the the peace of God. Because don't forget, as Ephesians 6.15 says, we have a gospel of peace. And so when you forsake gospel truth, you're, you're eroding someone's only path to peace with God. And that's something we cannot do. So peacemaking must not be at the expense of truth. And peacemaking must also not be at the expense of righteousness. Moral convictions must not go by the wayside just to appease someone else. The peacemaker is first and foremost bound to do what is right. We're not those who do evil or ignore evil, hoping that good may come. There are some people who naturally, they hate conflict and they want to avoid conflict at all costs, you might confuse that person with being a peacemaker, but they're not. That's a peace faker. 
This is the attitude of appeasement. It seeks to end hostilities by just giving into the demands of the more aggressive party. But usually these are unrighteous, unjust demands. That's not good or peace. You know, in the 1930s, Germany was becoming more aggressive in Europe. But the British Prime Minister Chamberlain, he wanted peace at all costs. He wanted to avoid war pretty much at any cost. So when the Germans took over Austria in March 1938, British did nothing. One month later, they invaded Czechoslovakia. This was an unjust invasion, but to keep the peace, Chamberlain formed what was known as the Munich Agreement, which basically just coerced the Czechs to just hand over whatever territory the Germans wanted. And Chamberlain hailed this agreement, calling it, quote, peace for our time. But this was just appeasement, and all it bought was a temporary cheap peace. As you likely know, the Germans invaded Poland one year later, and World War II began. But in contrast, the biblical peacemaker seeks a genuine peace and reconciliation between parties. He or she is pursuing concord among men, but they're standing on truth and righteousness. They're not going to give up truth and righteousness for a superficial peace. You know what that means is we're not always going to have peace. We're not always going to be able to make peace. But the peacemaker is one who pursues a type of biblical peace by doing what is right, standing on the truth, trusting God for the results. This is very much Romans twelve eighteen, which tells us, it says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. In this fallen world, it's, it's not going to be possible. But so long as it depends on you, for your sake, be at peace with all men. That's, that's the target. That's our aim in the faith. All right, so how do we do it then? How do we pursue at least peace with others? How do we aim to be a peacemaker that the type the Lord blesses? Well, again, still speaking negatively, we're we're not trying to seek the type of peace the world seeks. How does the world seek to establish peace? Well, by force and war even. And think about it. Usually the peace man achieves is brought about by brute force. There's no true reconciliation of differences. It's just one party becomes dominant over the other party and forces peace. And we're literally seeing it in Afghanistan right now where one party has lost power and others come to power and peace goes away. Using another World War II illustration, how was peace with the Japanese achieved? By nuclear war. And as the Japanese officials boarded the USS Missouri in the San Francisco Bay, they didn't want to be there. They didn't want to sign that peace treaty. They they were forced to sign that peace treaty because their cities were being devastated. It's a coerced peace. And really throughout most of world history, peace has been achieved by force. In biblical times, you can think of the, the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, where just by their overwhelming might, they ensured peace within their borders. Or a more modern example, we now have the United Nations Peacekeeping Force, deployed around the world to keep the peace. And they often do, but keep in mind, they carry some pretty big guns. Is that really peace? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm actually not opposed to peace by force in this fallen world. Peace by force is still better than war and anarchy, and I will take it. But the peace the world settles for falls far short of the peace of God. General MacArthur from World War II once observed that 
Quote, a truce just says you don't shoot for a while. End quote. And man's peace is really just a temporary truce. It, it'll end. He went on to say this, quote, Peace comes when the truth is known, the issue is settled, and the parties embrace each other, end quote. It's not that far from biblical peace there. Biblical peace is achieved when, when two parties come into actual alignment. Lasting peace comes when two different parties come to like-mindedness on essential issues and then charity on non-essential issues. It's like Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Yes, you do. But how do you do that? Well, let's keep going. Let's take another step here. To be a peacemaker and the type the Lord Jesus blesses, you need to know the source of conflict. Why do we fight? Why do men quarrel? There's actually one special key passage of Scripture that just outright tells us. You can keep your finger in Matthew if you want. Turn over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. We've seen James, the half-brother of the Lord, mimic Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. His whole epistle, he does that. A lot of echoes of the Sermon on the Mount in the epistle of James. But if you go to James 4, look at verses 1 and 2. Verse 1, he questions. He says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? That's our question. He says, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you don't have, so you commit murder. You're envious. You cannot attain, so you fight and quarrel. He goes on, but it's it's actually very simple. You know, boiling it down, where does all human strife come from? It comes from conflicting interests. You have desires, pleasures, lusts, James tells us, working on the inside. There are things you want in this life. There are things you're after. And it could be anything. It could be things that are good, things that are bad, anything. Just things you want. But this is a crowded world. It's just a matter of time before the things you want come up against what someone else wants, and you both can't get what you want. And so in that moment, if no one backs down, what happens? Well, fighting, strife, quarrels, conflict, even in the extreme murder. This is how conflict works on a personal scale and, and a national scale. It's all driven by some sort of selfish interest. And things are like this because of man's fall into sin. I mean, the root of sin is self, self-will. It's where we exalt self-will above God's will. We want our way, not God's way. We rebel against God's will. We cast his authority off from us. That only yields division, disaster, in the end, damnation. God created us to have a sense of individuality. There's nothing wrong with that. But he made us such that the driving purpose of our lives It's meant to be his will, his purposes, his worship. We're all meant to be united in the service and the worship of God, living life under the sun just for him, for his glory. And speaking of the sun, in our solar system, the sun is is central in more ways than one. The sun is necessary for the existence of life 
The sun's overwhelming mass creates this gravitational pull that holds all the planets and moons in a, in a fixed orbit. And that allows, allows the earth to have sustainable temperatures and seasons. It also ensures that the planets and the moons don't collide with one another. Right? It's, it's the centrality of the sun that gives rise to order and harmony in the solar system. But if the sun just vanished, what would happen? If that center of gravity was gone, that was holding everything in order, well, all the planets and moons would just spin out of control. They would be launched out into space, just hopelessly lost, and, and some might even collide with one another. It would be true disorder. And that's pretty much what happened after the fall. Mankind, under the headship of Adam, dethroned God in his heart. And spiritually speaking, it's like he kicked the sun out of the solar system. He would not recognize God as God. And like Romans 1 says, he exchanged the truth for a lie. He suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And as a result, man has been lost, spinning out of control ever since. And to make matters worse, now men bump into one another. They, they conflict with one another as they take turns trying to be God. Man wants to be king, wants to assert himself over others. He wants his will done on earth. You have men, selfish men, men playing God, men who have in mind their interests, not God's. This is where conflict comes from. Is it any wonder that in all of recorded human history, there's essentially been not a single year without some conflict somewhere on the globe among the nations? In America's short 250-year history, we've already been involved in 93 military conflicts. After the fall, all mankind has fallen out of alignment with God and his created purposes for us. That's also brought us out of alignment with one another. And so chaos, disorder, and conflict have been the result ever since. So you put all this together and scripture equips us to understand that the source of conflict. Very like, similar to the sixth beatitude where we understood that the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. In sin, we become lost, corrupt, self-willed from the heart. This has put us into conflict with God, our maker, and also with one another. And so all this goes to say that the biblical peacemaker is not interested in a band-aid approach to peace. He's not after appeasement or appeasement rather, or some sort of faux peace. He's not going to settle for a truce brought about by force, some sort of coerced peace. No, the, the, the biblical peacemaker wants true reconciliation between parties, but they know that only comes by dealing with conflict in the heart. The people must come into alignment with one another in the heart if they're going to have peace. But the biblical peacemaker also knows that people will only ever really come into alignment with one another when they've first been brought back into alignment with their God, with their created purposes as his creation. Selfish interests must be replaced with God's interests. When we're all unified with God's purposes, well, you'll see people getting along. Have you ever seen salmon swimming upstream to spawn? You'd have a, a tiny river, but you'll see th at peak thousands of, 
of salmon crammed into this space. And you would think, like, how could that be possible? It seems like chaos to put thousands of fish in this small little river. But it's actually not chaos. It's quite orderly because they're all swimming in the same direction. They all want the same thing just to get upstream. So they're not bumping into one another. They're, they're all going in the same direction. And so it goes with peace in the church or even in the world. It's only achieved when people start moving in the same direction, when they want the same things, they're aligned in purpose. The biblical peacemaker is trying to align people back to God's purposes that we're all knit together by by serving him, by seeking his will. All right, so that's a bit of a, a biblical framework for peacemaking, that the type the Lord blesses. Now, kind of with the second half, I want to show you some of the ways we we are to seek this peace. The Lord Jesus gives his blessing to those who make peace, who, like like Hebrews 12, 14 says, pursue peace with all men. We're, We're supposed to at least aim to pursue peace with all men. We want the blessing. Blessed are the peacemakers. And indeed, this should characterize all believers. But to get a bit more practical, let me give you three dimensions of peacemaking. Three dimensions of peacemaking. Biblically speaking, you may say like the picture of peacemaking is in 3D. It has three dimensions, three ways we are to seek peace. Just to make this a little more helpful or practical for you. First, help others find peace with God. Help others find peace with God. Like in a world of sin, everyone has problems. We witness a lot of suffering in our lives and the lives of people around us. And naturally, I hope you want to alleviate that suffering. So you see people suffering physically, you want to give mercy. You see people suffering relationally, you want to bring peace. But for the person who doesn't know the Lord, you might help resolve some of their earthly problems. But at the end of the day, they're they're still perishing. They're still under judgment. They're still at enmity with God, their maker. They don't have peace with God. So if you care also about their souls, you you want to do something about that as well. You want to help them resolve their biggest conflict, which is with their God, that they might have peace with God. And so this first dimension of peacemaking really involves just evangelism, sharing the gospel with others. Like we said, this is a gospel of peace, Ephesians 6.15. We have the words of life that make for peace, peace with God, peace in the soul. And the peacemaker is first and foremost, a minister of that gospel. And we should first be announcing this message of peace, peace with God. And look, isn't that what God did with us first? Realize God was the first peacemaker. We were his enemies, all of us, you, me, we were by nature, children of wrath. We were cut off as rebels. We were under his condemnation. He would have been perfectly just to wipe us all out in judgment. But he's also a God of mercy and he was moved to compassion, moved to save some, some of these rebels, to realign them to himself, to move them from enemies to friends, children. God has the power to do that, this transformation. And he did so through his son, Christ. And this is what the gospel message is all about. 
you know, God sent his angels to announce the coming of the Messiah. And remember what they said, Luke 2, 14, they sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. Jesus came as the long awaited prince of peace and he did not come bearing a sword to force it. He came bearing a cross. That's because what separated us from God was our sin. But by his atoning substitutionary death on the cross, he paid for our sins in, his, in, uh, in our place. Like Colossians 1.20 says, Jesus made peace through the blood of his cross. He made peace through sacrifice, not by killing, but by dying, giving himself through the blood of his cross. And Jesus then rose from the dead, demonstrating that the full weight of our, our sin was gone, was paid for. There's now nothing that separates us from God. And that's why after Jesus rose and he appeared in the midst of his disciples, what's the first thing he said? Luke 24, 36, he said, peace be to you. And now that he had died and rose, they could, they could truly know that the shalom of God, peace with God, it could be well with their souls. He had risen. And the same can be true for you. If you would repent of your sins, look upon Christ by faith. You confess him as your Lord. You cling to him as your savior, recognizing you need this. You need forgiveness. He can save you, justify you, declare you not guilty, make you perfectly righteous. It's the gift of grace he offers to those who look upon him. There's some of you here who, who still need this. You, you can't go further. You don't have peace with God yourself. This is your step one. Like we read this morning, Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. First, you need to find this peace in your own life by faith, by calling out to Christ by faith. For those of you who have found God's peace by, by this faith in Christ, well, now the Lord leaves you behind to, to be like those angels. Just walk around telling people the message of good news, to announce this message that peace has come. God has given us a ministry, and Scripture calls it a ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he's committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's the, that's the passage, the plea of a peacemaker right there. And that's not just Paul. That should be all of us appealing to others. We don't have a message of cleverness. We don't need the world's tips and life hacks and wisdom. Right? We, just, we simply preach Christ and him crucified. And we call men, even plead that they would be reconciled to their God and maker. And when they do, they become realigned to their created purposes and they first find peace with God. And so the first dimension of being a peacemaker is it's really just evangelism. You're helping others find peace with God. You must minister the gospel. 
Secondly, help others find the peace of God. First, help others find peace with God. Second, help others find the peace of God. You might be wondering, like, what's the difference? Peace with God, peace of God. Or regarding peace with God, we're talking salvation. It's where one is transformed from an enemy of God to a friend by the new birth, by salvation. When you come to Christ, you're no longer at war with God. He has made peace. And your soul is secure. But now we're talking about the peace of God. We're talking about the experience of peace in the daily life of a believer. That's the peace of God. You might have some true believers. and They have been reconciled to God by faith. But in their daily lives, it sure doesn't seem like they experience much peace. Their lives are instead dominated by fear and anxiety and worry. And on paper, they should be able to say, it is well with my soul. But in daily life, like, they don't feel that very much. That shouldn't be the case. But for many people, it is. And the problem is that as believers, we're meant to live in peace. It's part of the blessings, part of our witness. We're never promised the absence of conflict or turmoil, strife, affliction, suffering. None of that. We can expect all of that. But. Even still, as we walk by God's spirit, we should bear the fruit of the spirit. What's one of the main fruits of the spirit? Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace. Elsewhere, we're outright commanded. Colossians 3.15 says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You have it, but it must rule your heart. 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says, now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. That's a key verse because look, in in the Christian life, we are not guaranteed a trouble-free life. Really just the opposite, actually. You will likely encounter many circumstances marked by affliction. Look, what's coming up next is the eighth beatitude. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Storms of life will come just a matter of time, or we're going to see disorder in our lives, disorder in our bodies, disorder at work, disorder in our relationships. It's just a fallen world. But none of these circumstances need rob us of the peace of God, which resides within. That peace is based on our salvation. It's directly related to how much we trust the Lord. And it's, it's irrespective of circumstances. Circumstances are irrelevant when it comes to the peace of God. And so then we find a second dimension of peacemaking, which is helping others achieve this peace. This is like the biblical counselor. and You don't need a degree for that. Just as a functioning Christian who helps believers grow in sanctification and spiritual maturity that they're actively walking by the spirit and experiencing God's peace. How do you do this? This type of peacemaking is just a function of all the one another's, right? Exhort one another, encourage one another, counsel one another, help one another, minister to one another, bear the burdens of one another, pray for one another. And speaking of prayer, prayer is praying for yourself and, and praying for others, teaching them to cast their cares upon the Lord. It's one of the primary mechanisms of receiving, experiencing the peace of God. I trust you know, I hope you know, Philippians 4, 6, and 7. 
It says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Pray away what you desire, but you come to say, your will be done, not my will be done. Verse 7 says, and the peace of God, which surpasses comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as peacemakers, we are also apt or are prone, aiming to help others find this type of peace. Peace with God, peace of God, that they might bear that fruit, be blessed, and witness. Lastly here, let's do one more, a third dimension. Help others find peace with others. Now among men, help others find peace with others. And this, I believe that Jesus has most in mind in the seventh beatitude, peace in relationships. It's actually a key theme in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll see it see unfold as time goes on. But one thing God hates is peace breakers. And I don't make that up. That's just Proverbs 6, 16 and following. Proverbs six sixteen says, there are six things which the Lord hates. Yes, seven, which are an abomination to him. And the last thing on that list is this, the one who spreads strife among brothers. Those who stir up strife and sow dissension, they're doing the work of the devil. That makes you look more like a child of Satan than a child of God. Because the enemy delights to see people out of alignment with God and out of alignment with one another. And some people, they're they're like this. They're prone to this. They're always picking a fight. They're always quarreling and having conflict. In a word, they would be contentious. But this is just an expression of their pride, which God also hates. And so you could easily say the opposite of the seventh beatitude. That cursed are the peace breakers. And God hates that. But we're to be the opposite, the peacemaker. And of course, that applies to your own personal relationships. Just first, your own life. And as you come into conflict with others, you are to pursue, so far as it depends on you, reconciliation. This is by righting any wrongs, by seeking forgiveness for your offenses, by helping others deal with their sin. And if you're back in Matthew 5, we're going to learn shortly, this is part of your worship. This is how we worship, Matthew 5, 23, later in the Sermon on the Mount. And Christ says, therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar. Go first, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. What does God want first? Once your heart, your life in order, your worship Leave your offering. You come back to that later. When your heart is right, reconcile. That's how much God cares about reconciliation among his people. Bad times, though, you'll also need to take the step of getting involved in the conflict of others. Like, like you're the third party. And especially in the church body, we're not to just sit idly by as, as others are stirring up strife. Like Paul did with the Philippians. There comes a time when the peacemaker will, will stand between two who quarrel and, and seek to biblically reconcile them. This work of reconciling two parties, it, it's just a function of Ephesians 4.1, which calls us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It involves Ephesians 4.2, humility, gentleness, patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. 
And that's how we get to Ephesians 4, 3, where we can preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. It's the same as Colossians 3, 12 through 15. Kind of long, but listen to this. Colossians 3, 12 through 15. It says, So as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And he says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. There's a lot in there to mind, but you may have noticed, he said in the middle, whoever has a complaint against anyone, like even in the church, that's going to happen. People will come into conflict with one another. Complaints and differences will arise. And when it comes to essential matters, essential doctrine, we've established that there's no compromise there. That those are just hills to die on. But when it comes to personal preference, that's when we, we bear with one another. We allow for differences without dividing. And when it comes to personal offenses, well, that's where we forgive just as the Lord has forgiven us. Like Paul said back in Ephesians 2, Christ himself has established peace in his body. Between Jew, Gentile, all of us, he's broken down the dividing wall. He is our peace. He's made us one body. We are called to preserve that peace by peacemaking. 2 Corinthians thirteen eleven says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. We serve a God of peace. This is us just being like him. If you can kind of finish with a brief practical note, how would you go about seeking peace among others who are in conflict, especially in the church? And, and briefly, you know, what, what divides people? More, more specifically speaking, I think it often comes down to sin and preferences. Sin and preferences. Regarding the latter, you might have two church members disagreeing, dividing over some issue. Let's just presume it's, it's not a gospel issue. It's not a salvation issue. And so we know the church should not be fractured over it. But at the same time, you might have people with, with very strong differences based on personal beliefs and convictions. And so this is where you would first be like Paul and and minister the gospel to these people. Remind them that the glue of the gospel holds them together, that they are one in Christ. They are brother and sister. They're, They're on the same team. Don't let friendly fire divide the church. And second, you would help them gain an understanding of Christian liberties for the Lord has allowed us a, a measure of liberty and freedom in the church on these secondary issues. Many principles go into that discussion, like not stumbling the weaker brother, like always doing that which edifies the body. But go ahead, contend for what you believe, for what you think. Still, at the end of the day, you might have a, a situation where, where both of these parties retain their differences and their con- convictions, neither budges in what they believe. Well, this is where, as Colossians 3.13 says, that they need to bear with one another. They need to show tolerance for one another in love, without judgment, without bitterness. This is what requires those ample doses of Colossians 3.12. 
compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience. It's extreme pride where someone can't understand how someone else could possibly think a different way. Like, unless you think like me, you're clearly wrong. It's one of the heights of pride. You need a lot of humility. And a lot of this peacemaking will come down to how much humility and forbearance these two parties can muster up in their relationship over these non-essential matters. Now, sometimes, though, people conflict and divide over sin. And when we're dealing with sin issues, here, tolerance is not called for. Now, peacemaker, peacemaking involves helping others put away their sin biblically. It's something the Lord tells us to do. Matthew 18, 15, if you see your brother sin, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. Especially in the church, we're called to peace. Sin in the camp disrupts that peace. And so when you have a believer who's momentarily hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, we're called to exhort that person, reprove them to repent and be restored. And sometimes a type of conflict is needed to produce true peace. Many in the church, they, this is their worst nightmare. They, they would much rather appease someone's sin, just ignore it, sweep it under the rug, just overlook it. But not only does that dishonor and disobey God, it's also sowing the seeds for a far greater conflict later. The peacemaker seeks biblical peace where all are in alignment with God's will and purposes So you have one member going way out of alignment. Uh, We're called to, in love, call them to return. And we do so graciously. This is all hard work. Peacemaking involves dipping your toes into someone else's trouble and, and taking their burdens on your shoulders. But look, the Lord calls us not to live in isolation, but to live lives together as a body in the church. So when one member is way out of order, Love and peacemaking calls them back. The third dimension of peacemaking seeks to reconcile people to the Lord and to one another. Ultimately, effective peacemaking requires a thorough working knowledge of God's wisdom in the scriptures. And look, in this little sermon, there's only so much of that we can give to you. But I'll tell you what, if you see a lot of conflict in your life or in the lives of others around you, first, I would tell you to hopefully be convicted to to do something, to no longer be on on the sidelines, but to graciously and humbly seek to peacemake between them. Don't just spectate and watch as strife divides others. But second, seek godly counsel. Seek wisdom from God's word and wisdom from godly men and women around you. You know, we seek to shepherd you at this church, not just through sermons, but through personal counsel, Seek out your pastors, your elders, godly leaders. Get equipped at a deeper level to be one who can effectively pursue peace and and be a peacemaker, stand in the gap. If you do so, well, the Lord says, you will be blessed. Blessed are the peacemakers. And this, this is just part of what it's like for us to be like our God. And isn't that what the Lord was getting at in the blessing, the promise of the seventh beatitude? Again, back to Matthew 5, 9, he says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This beatitude, like the ones before it, is in the future tense. And these beatitudes speak of blessings that belong to us right now, but they'll be made full in the future. So right now, 
like Romans 8 says, we have been made by God's grace, by his making. We have been made his sons, his daughters, his children. That sonship, however, will be validated on the last day, giving way to our eternal inheritance. And one big mark of our sonship is that we're peacemakers. This is just where we bear the family resemblance. We bear the resemblance of our heavenly father who first made peace with us. We demonstrate we're his children. This is why God sent his son into the world to make peace. The enemy sows division and discord, but Christ came as the prince of peace. So let's resolve. We need to be like him. Let us be like our Lord and Savior, our God, our Father. Prove to be his sons and daughters as you seek peace, you pursue it, you sacrifice for it, you long for it, you work hard for it. You don't rest until troubled souls around you find peace with God, the peace of God, and the peace with others. This is one of the main reasons God left us behind in this hostile world. We are kind of like God's peacekeeping force. The church, an outpost of the kingdom, we are to keep and promote peace in this world. But we do not carry guns. We do carry a sword. That being the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And so let's resolve to be ministers of the gospel of peace, to use God's truth to seek souls coming back into alignment with their maker, with one another. That they might have peace in the world, peace in the church, peace in the home, peace in your lives. Let us be peace makers. Let's pray together. Our gracious God in heaven, that, that is, I pray, our resolve this morning. Every single one of us knows strife. We know discord. We know disunity. We know fights. We get in them all the time because even as believers, we still can be so selfish, putting our needs, our wants above others. As we learned even last week, though, give us a unity through humility. Humble us. Just, just align us to you and your will. What, what are your purposes? What's, what do you want done? Unify us in that. And we will walk just fine side by side, even helping one another grow and become more like Christ. We need this in this local church and the church at large. Keep us humble, Lord. For any who've, who've not made peace with you, we pray for them right now that even by your spirit, you would stir up their hearts. You'd convict them. Show them that first and foremost, they need to be reconciled to their creator. That Their soul knows no rest. They will find no peace in this life. Death looms for all, but there's a, a second life for those who only pass through one death, we pray they find it by faith in Christ. Convict them. And for the rest of us, may we leave with greater resolve to be peacemakers. There are times we just want to be peace fakers, appeasing others. We often are peace breakers, just fighting to get our way. But again, Lord, humble us under your word and will. And may we just be like our Savior who laid down his life to make peace with us. We do so for others, to your glory, for our witness, and to our blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.